Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. And we continue in this farewell discourse that began in John 13 at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper and all that Jesus has prepared his disciples for, his imminent departure, their apostolic ministry. Their lives are being shaken in a way that they could never envision as Jesus has told them that he was going to leave them, that they could not come, but that one day he would come back for them. And so as he has gone through and shared with them with great detail about what is to happen, he's also shared with them the provision of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would be with them every step of the way, that the Holy Spirit would be His presence amongst them for everything they would ever go through. As we come to this section in this discourse, this title is From Sorrow to Joy, and what began in John chapter 13 has continued to deepen the sense of sorrow that the disciples initially have been feeling and dealing with, and it just continues to get more and more difficult for them to consider, to contemplate, to grasp exactly what it is that is about to happen. And as we think about this topic of sorrow and joy, it occurs to me that we live in a world today that is in desperate need for joy. We live in such a tumultuous time I fear that if President Trump is to win another term, our society just might unravel because they just don't know how to process all that he has been proclaimed to be through our media. If another unarmed black individual is killed by the police, I don't know what's going to happen within our communities. It's going to fall off the rails. There is such a feeling of despair in our world and our culture today It reminds me of what has gone on in the 20th century with the First World War, quickly followed by the Depression, followed by World War II, a very brief time of peace in the Korean conflict, and then the Vietnam War, and government scandal, and skirmishes in Iraq and the Middle East, and the Cold War, financial uncertainty, and all that is taking place in our world today we need to know that there is a source of joy that can overcome any sorrow that we might ever deal with in our life. But you know, most of us don't experience the kind of joy in our life that Jesus provides for us. One of the greatest things that can be said about an individual who is going through deep and dark days is that nothing has taken their joy away from them. Perhaps the greatest thing that could ever come to a person who is deep in sorrow is the assurance, the promise that their sorrow is temporary. Think about the sorrow in your life. Think about the times in your life when you didn't know how you were going to make it through the next day. When literally the next steps felt so impossible that you just couldn't consider what was going to happen. What you needed to hear in those times is that this is only temporary. But in the moment, it feels like there is this deep chasm that we have entered into and we will fearfully never, ever get out of. Have you ever felt that way? 
Do you know people that are feeling that way? Well, what these people need to recognize is that their sorrow is only temporary. To bring someone who is deep in sorrow a word that doesn't provide the reality that this is temporary will fall very short of helping them. Words like, it's going to be okay. You can get through this. The sun is going to rise tomorrow. These platitudes that we're so quick to throw out fall far short of directing people to the source of joy that is available and that they need. That this would be the experience of people who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior who live in this deep sense of sorrow with no hope of joy. One of the greatest indictments to the cross of Christ is a Christian who cannot find any joy in their life regardless of what it is they're going through. Now, I am not minimizing the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child or the loss of your own health. What I'm saying is this, and what we have seen throughout these pages, is that Jesus is the source of joy. And as we will see in this passage, no one can take that joy away from us. Jesus has told His disciples that He is about to die, that He is going to leave them, and He is trying to alleviate their sorrow with these incredible promises which are centralized in the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will be with you and you will do greater things than I. He says, you can ask anything in My name and I will do it for you. I will give you the power to be victorious over the world that hates you and you will be My witnesses and it's going to be better for you that I go away. This is much of what Jesus has been talking about. And this dialogue continues as we focus on verses 16 through 22 where Jesus is talking about this transition from sorrow to joy. This will be part one of what we'll finish next week. Let's read together beginning in verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. That is a pretty stiff promise that Jesus makes to His disciples on the eve of His death. We'll look at this part of our message in three major outline points, and the first one is this, and that is the Lord's pronouncement. Verse 16, He says, A little while you will no longer see Me, and again in a little while... And you will see me. Jesus is saying, 
I didn't go back and count the number of times, but it's at least four or five, if not more. I am leaving. But he says here, you will see me again. So there's some significant debate about as to what exactly Jesus means when he says, you will see me again in a little while. So we understand what the phrase a little while means. It means a short period of time. Now, only a few hours before Jesus would be arrested, he is saying this to his disciples, that in a little while you will no longer see me, and again in a little while you will see me. The very first time that Jesus used this expression was in John 7.33, and the Pharisees were trying to capture him. And he says in John 7.33, Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. By most accounts, this was several months before the time that we are looking now in John chapter 16. So a little while in this context means several months. The next time that Jesus uses this phrase is in John 12:35 and this is when he was teaching about his true identity and he says, "For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. The little while that is referenced here is likely just several days away, maybe a couple of weeks before we entered into John 13 in the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. Well, Jesus uses the phrase for the third time in John 13 at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says, and this is what began the period of sorrow in the minds and the hearts of the disciples when Jesus said, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going You cannot come. Now, upon that initial pronouncement, the disciples, who had just a few days earlier had witnessed Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem to great fanfare, a parade-like atmosphere, He is now telling them that I am going away and you don't get to come. So we know at this point in the narrative, this again is just a few hours before Jesus would be arrested, And so he says the same thing here in our passage. In a little while you no longer see me. And in a little while you again will see me. And he does so to provide comfort for them in the depth of their sorrow. So the debate is centered around Jesus is saying that in a little while they will see him again. So what exactly does that mean? What are the options that we are going to have and what we think Jesus means by this. Well, if you look at verse 18 very quickly, even the disciples are significantly confused by what Jesus means. So, a little while, is it hours? Is it days, weeks? Is it months? As it's been used in the previous examples. Well, the scholars tell us that there are really three options for how we understand this pronouncement. The first one is the resurrection. There are many that hold to this view that Jesus would die in a few hours, and that would be on Friday afternoon, and then in roughly 36 hours, or by the Jewish calendar account, in three days, Jesus would be raised from the dead. After his resurrection, which is just a little while, a few hours, they would see him again, and over the course of around 40 days, Jesus would make sporadic appearances to his disciples 
teaching them, verifying to them that He is alive, bolstering their faith, helping them to get through the difficulty of what they witnessed, His death, the miraculousness of His resurrection, and the uncertainty of what is going to come in the days ahead. Well, when they are going to see Jesus in just a few hours, in a little while, after His death, when He's been raised from the dead, you would think that that would bring them a great source of joy knowing that He isn't really dead. Now, His presence is only temporary before His ascension, but this is one of the options, is that this is talking about, Jesus is talking about, his resurrection appearances after they've witnessed his death. The second option that we have is Jesus referring to his return. This is the parousa, when Jesus will return the second advent of Christ. This is the most difficult view to hold to, but some do hold to it. And there's a couple of reasons why people think that Jesus might be alluding to the second coming. In John 14, verses 1 through 4, Jesus initiated the idea that He was going to go away and He was going to prepare a place for them and He would come back for them and take them to the place in the Father's house that has been prepared for them. So this is one of the reasons why people think Jesus might be alluding to the second coming. This is also thought to be a possibility because of the reference to the birth pangs that are mentioned in verse 21. And when you combine this statement with what Jesus said in Matthew 21 about the terrible events that would precede His second coming, we read this in Matthew 24, 8, but all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. And so when you see birth pangs in Matthew 21 and birth pangs here in John 16, some think that coupling that with what was said in John 14, that Jesus might be alluding to his second coming. But think about this in terms of the sorrow that the disciples are going through. How much joy would it give to them to know that they are going to see Jesus at his second advent, which to date has still not taken place some 2,000 years later. So while some do hold to this as a possibility, it is the least likely of the three options. The third option is the day of Pentecost. Now this view fits because the outpouring of the Spirit would come in 40 days, which fits within the phrase of what a little while means. It's not an exceedingly long time. And Jesus has also gone to great lengths to communicate to His disciples that when the Father sends, quote, another helper, it is another helper of the same kind, of the same nature, of the same essence. Not a cousin, not a little brother, not a distant relative. But what Jesus says is that the helper the Father is going to send is going to be just like me. He says this in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 19. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. 
you will live also. So the implication here is that Jesus personally is going to come to them in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, who will reveal Christ to the disciples and will testify about Christ to the world. This is the promise of the permanency of the Holy Spirit who is also called the Spirit of Christ. In Galatians 4.6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this idea that Jesus might be referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fits very well with what He has already said about Himself and about who the Helper is. And so as you think about the kind of joy that would bring to the lives of the disciples, knowing that in a little while He's going to go away, but He's going to show back up and He is going to be with them forever. Now for you and I, who have never seen Jesus in the physical skin and bones of which He lived some 2,000 years later, it is a tremendous promise to us to know that when the Holy Spirit comes to us and indwells us and seals us, He brings to us the capacity to provide all the comfort that Jesus Himself would bring. Comfort in our problems. Comfort in our fears. Comfort in our pain. Comfort in our uncertainty. And that comfort is designed to bring us joy. You've heard the term comfort food, haven't you? What is comfort food? Well, it could be it could be pizza, it could be macaroni and cheese, it could be a hamburger, it could be lasagna, it could be whatever it was that you ate in your upbringing that brought to you a sense of peace and calm and familiarity and maybe even a, a reminder of home and my mother and my family. And boy, if I can just dig into a big piece of apple pie, I will feel better. That will comfort me. Lunchtime, isn't it? And when we're comforted, the circumstances, the fear and the sorrow, just for a moment, gets a little bit better. How much more so when the Holy Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of Christ, comes to live within us to give to us the very comfort of God Himself. You know, in our day today, many wonder where God is in the midst of all their sorrow. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit has gone AWOL, and here I am, and I'm really sorrowful, and I'm deeply grieved, and I've got a lot of fear. God, where are You? I just don't see You. Well, He's there. He's always there. He's never not going to be there. And it is the spiritual discipline of the child of God who knows the Word, who prays the Word, who claims the Word, who puts his faith in the Word, and can find joy and comfort apart from the circumstance to which Jesus says no one can take that joy away from you. Now, it's important that in the immediate context that Jesus is with His disciples, He's dealing with their sorrow and with the imminent departure that He has told them of. So He makes a pledge that they will see Him in a little while, and I would bet that that would alleviate in some way 
the sorrow that they felt. For the disciples, Jesus was leaving, and that brings about great sorrow. He promises the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is probably some comfort, but it's one they can't identify with yet. It's one that they're not going to experience for a little while longer. So when you look at these three views, which of these is correct? Well, when you introduce something like that, people say, well, what do you think? Tell us what's right, right? Isn't that what you're expecting? Well, in immediate context, probably the resurrection view is the best as the disciples are going to visibly see Jesus nailed to the cross and the bottom is going to fall out of their world They're not going to know what to think and what to do. And holy cow, in a little while they're going to see Him again. That's going to bring them some comfort. In the longer view of life in general, probably the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fits and makes very good sense here because He's going to be with us all the days of our lives. And what we need to recognize is that when Jesus is teaching His disciples in the moment, there is a forth-telling, a future application to those who will know Jesus that doesn't fit in the immediate context because I didn't see Him leave. I didn't see Him die on the cross. But I know that the Holy Spirit is always going to be with me because God's Word says so and I've seen that take place in my own life. So the resurrection view fits the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fits. And in the view of eternity, when we look back on our days and we wonder how we've ever made it this far and what's going to come at me next, we have this view of eternity, the return of Christ, or our being ushered into His presence, which provides for us a tremendous hope that any and all sorrow will be extinguished at the instant eternity begins. So all these views can be correct. If you want to nail me down, the resurrection view is probably the most correct because it deals with the immediacy of the disciples' need, but that doesn't mean that we can't make accurate, truthful application to the other possibility that can be found in these views. So this is what Jesus is saying. I am leaving in a little while, and in a little while you're going to see me again, and that is designed to bring them some joy in the midst of their sorrow. Now the second point in our outline is the disciples' puzzlement. We see this in verses 17 and 18. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Now Jesus often taught the crowds and parables and I almost wonder if the disciples aren't thinking that Jesus is trying to give us this unsolvable riddle and there's some kind of meaning here and boy, I'm just not in the mindset for a riddle. What in the world are you talking about? Please tell us. So there is great confusion about what Jesus means when He says, in a little while and again, in a little while. So it's obvious that as John recounts the experience that he had with the disciples, with Jesus, at this time, that they had no idea 
what Jesus is talking about. No idea. Now, we can look at this post-revelation and say, well, how obvious could it be? Well, in the moment, we wouldn't have a clue either. When tragedy strikes our life, when great sorrow visits our doorstep, we have no perspective out of the right now. God, this hurts. God, I don't like this. God, I really, really, really want this to go away. I have no idea what it is you're trying to do. And to be quite honest with you, I don't really care what you're trying to do. I just want this to go away. But you know, when we look back at those difficulties, we look back at those hardships, and we begin to have a spiritual perspective about what it was God was trying to do, and normally we will say, oh, I get it now. But I'll promise you, in the moment, we would have been very confused just like they were. Now this confirms what Jesus said just a little bit earlier in the passage that we looked at last week, that he has much more to say to them, but they cannot bear it. Not only can they not bear it, but they have no context to even understand it. Their life is coming unglued, and they don't know what they're going to do. They're grasping for anything that would be stable for them, And they wouldn't be able to understand or tolerate anything additional that Jesus would say to them. So they're very confused. And there's a couple of interesting observations that come out of this puzzlement that they have and what is written for us. Number one, these are the first words that are recorded by John that was spoken by anybody other than Jesus all the way back to John 14.22 when Judas, not Iscariot, asks a very simple question. It's been a very lengthy, it's been a very heavy discourse. And so they've either not been able to speak because of all that they are processing in their minds and in their hearts as they contemplate what Jesus has been saying and what that means for them, or whatever has been said, John has chosen not to record because it's inconsequential to the central themes that are found in this discourse. Now, as we think about what Jesus is saying to them, as we remind ourselves that they have left the upper room and they're probably on the road walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, I doubt very seriously that they're having a casual conversation about how bright the stars are and how lush the vineyard might look and, boy, my feet are getting really dirty. They are thinking about everything that Jesus is saying and what that means for them. And so it's probable that they have not had the ability to say anything. And in a sense, they have become overwhelmed by all that Jesus has said. How can the Messiah, how can He leave and set up His kingdom? That doesn't make sense. That just cannot happen. Why does the Messiah have to die? If He dies... Is he really going to come back? If he comes back, how long is it going to be? What's it going to be like? And what's going to happen to me when he comes back? Well, we wouldn't have understood it either. I believe that they have probably reached a breaking point and they've just had to say something as they have processed all that Jesus has been disclosing to them. So these are the first words that are recorded. And so also, there is a very quiet discussion that is taking place amongst the disciples 
collectively, they just can't remain silent any longer. Somebody has to say something. It's almost like an uncontrollable instinct to say, what is he talking about? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone or maybe in a, a, a disagreement with someone and they say something and you, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you even mean. You just can't sit and listen any longer. You feel compelled to speak up and to speak out and potentially this is what is taking place in the lives of the disciples. Number three, they've got some questions that need to be asked and they are hoping for the answer. But if you'll read through this account, Jesus doesn't give them the opportunity to ask the question. He cuts them off at the pass and begins to address their questions as a gracious sign of love with incredible tolerance dealing with these that He loves and love Him. So they have a lot of questions. You can see in their faces their concern and their confusion their need for some clarification about what is being said. And so Jesus stops them, and He says this in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question Him, and He said to them, Are you deliberating together about, about this, what I said? A little while, and you will not see Me. And again, a little while, you will see Me. So Jesus is willing to address their unanswered questions. But why? Why is He willing to do that? Because He wants them to be comforted. He wants to help them transition from sorrow to joy. At this point in the discourse, they are overwhelmed and Jesus continues to reinforce that He is going to be with them and He wants for them to not be bogged down in their sorrow. He's not interested in developing their theology that would come in time through the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not interested in exposing their ignorance or their lack of understanding and adding to their feelings of sorrow or their bewilderment. He simply wants to bring comfort in this difficulty that they're facing, and that, my friend, is the caring nature of God. He knows what we need, and before it can be articulated, He addresses it. In His sovereignty, in His time, in His way, God addresses our sorrow in a way that will bring to us the comfort that we desire. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their fears. He knows their needs. He knows they're filled with sorrow and in need of comfort. And He is providing them with the assurance that they will see Him again in a little while. The specifics of what that means isn't important in the moment. Only that they will see Him again. So Jesus shares with them this parable to help them understand what it is He is talking about. So number three in our outline, this is the helpful parable. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. So there's three elements in this parable. The first one is this, their sorrow. They are very well acquainted with their sorrow. Jesus is very well acquainted with their sorrow. And He says that you are going to weep and you are going to lament. Now I don't know if you've heard 
some good old-fashioned weeping and lamenting, but I want to tell you, it'll shake you to the core. In the Jewish culture, as we looked at much earlier in the Gospel of John, they would hire professional weepers and lamenters to come to the funeral so that the individual's life would be mourned properly. If you've ever seen images or seen videos of funeral services where people have no hope and there is no certainty of an eternity with God and there's just this overwhelming sense of loss, the weeping and the lamenting and the wailing will stop you in your tracks. Jesus tells them that this is exactly how they are going to feel. Now, in the moment, that doesn't bring to them a lot of comfort. They have loved Him. They have trusted Him. They have lived with Him and followed Him for three and a half years. They believed Him to be sent by the Father, the Messiah, who possesses the very words of life. They put their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength into their walk with the Lord. And in just a few hours, they will watch Him die on the cross and they will weep and they will wail like there is no tomorrow. But on the day of His resurrection, Jesus will appear to them and that will bring to them great joy. You know, when Jesus was raised, according to the Gospel of Mark, He appeared to Mary Magdalene, and she went and reported to the others that she had seen the Lord. And this is what it says in Mark 16.10. She went and reported to those who had been with Him while they were mourning and weeping. This is early on Sunday morning. They're still weeping and mourning the loss of Jesus. So, their lives will be shattered And Jesus is not only preparing them for that, but He's laying the foundation for why their sorrow will be turned to joy. Number two, as we look at the elements of this parable, the world will be rejoicing. Is that a shocking pronouncement to you? That in the depth of the disciples' sorrow, the world around them is going to be rejoicing in the death of Christ. The Pharisees will be satisfied that their nemesis is finally dead. Satan will be pleased because in his mind, his plan seemingly has been accomplished. The evil world system is now going to go unchecked because the source of light that has showed just how evil the world system is has been removed and done away with. There is a great contrast between the world and between God's people. We should never, ever, ever forget that. And this is a subtle reminder here that while the disciples will be in the thick of their grief, the world around them will be rejoicing. Whenever the hearts of God's people are broken, the world rejoices. Thirdly, Third element, their grief will be turned to joy. Jesus says you will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. In the immediacy of the cross, the disciples will see Jesus after His resurrection and they will understand that death was not permanent. It was but a shadow. Still a lot that they don't know. Still a lot that they don't understand. Still a lot that they can't explain. But they will see Him. They will see the scars in His hands. And they will know that the Jesus 
that they have followed, that they've seen dead on the cross, has come back to life, and death was not permanent. You know, the cross is our source of joy because the cross isn't the end of the story. The cross brings us the victory of the resurrection. Through the cross and the victory of the resurrection, the disciples will come to learn that they have overcome the power of sin. That through Jesus they have overcome the power of death. That they had been brought close to God, that they have been brought back to God, that God in the presence of the Holy Spirit now lives within them permanently. They have this confident hope and eternal life, and that is our source of joy. Regardless of what we face, what we go through, how difficult it can be, we have to cling to the truth that the empty tomb is the source of of our joy. What was true for them in seeing Jesus raised from the dead, what was true for them as the Holy Spirit revealed to them and filled in the gaps and answered the questions and explained it all in a very clear theological way, and the way it brought joy to them, it brings joy to us as we read over and over countless passages about who God is, about what God has done, and about, God, about what God will do. And folks, if that doesn't bring us joy, we've lost sight of the cross and the empty tomb and the confident hope of our eternity. I have heard many, many, many people say who were on death's doorstep, if I didn't have the hope of eternal life, being a Christian and walking with Christ all these years would still have been worth it. Why? Because the presence of God in the Holy Spirit makes all the difference. The sorrow that we experience can be a test. It, it can expose what we truly believe about this God of all comfort. Sometimes the sorrow can be a punishment. It's a lesson that needs to be learned because we have strayed away from the path of the Lord. Either case, God is doing what is best for us. I mentioned that last week. Have you heard your parents say that? This is for your own good? You go, well, I've heard that one before. I was watching a rerun of Andy Griffith this past week, and there's little Opie. He's six years old laying on the bed. And his dad has just told him he can't come down to the courthouse anymore and hang around the jail. It's a bad influence on him. It's for your own good. And Obi said, I've heard that one before. If it's for my own good, why am I so sad? And that's the way we feel. God is going to do for us what is best for us. And if we trust His heart, and if we trust His character, and if we trust His motivation, if we can cling to His sovereignty, we will be reminded that it is not God's goal to make us happy. It is God's goal to make us more like Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29, some of the most quoted verses in all the Bible with good reason. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. We who are the clay do not have the right to question the manner with which the potter molds the clay into what He wants it to be. We just trust the hands of 
of the potter. Now, while it isn't stated in this passage, and Jesus doesn't articulate this to His disciples, we need to be reminded that the world's joy will one day turn to great sorrow when they stand in judgment. When the enemies of God, when those who are indifferent to God, when those that have constructed a God that fits their own ideals and desires, when they stand before Him in judgment, there will be no joy. Now, we shouldn't stand there and say, Yeah! We should say, What a terrible tragedy the day of judgment is going to be. I don't believe for a moment that Jesus will rejoice in that day of judgment. But God is just. And God will punish sin that has not been atoned for through the blood of Christ. The pleasures of the world will be forgotten on the day of judgment. The self-willed, self-willed life will be regretted. They will see the glory of the Lord in all its fullness and they are going to say, Woe is me. Well, these three elements that are in this parable are now solidified in this example, and that is the example of childbirth, of how sorrow can be turned to joy in childbirth. Where'd we go? I missed one, I'm sorry. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been brought into the world. Almost every mother will tell you that the pain of giving birth doesn't compare to the joy of holding that little bundle of life for the very first time. I remember when Marcy gave birth to our kids. I remember the hours of contractions and the pushing, and Marcy would go into this trance-like state where she would just emit these guttural growls and these very, very concerning sounds and she didn't want to communicate and she was just in this thing and I could tell that it was incredibly painful but in the moment that the baby was born when he was wrapped in a blanket when he was laid on her chest she had a big smile twirl on her hair and there he is look at this the joy has replaced the pain of childbirth sorrow will be turned to joy. That doesn't mean that giving birth is fun. It doesn't mean that it's painless, but it will be transferred into joy when you get to hold that baby. That's the idea with the cross. Verse 22, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Not the Jews who would beat them. Not the Romans who would imprison them. Not the people who would, with great hostility, rush them out of the town. Not even those who would be responsible for their martyred death will take their joy away from them. Why? Because they know the joy of the cross, of the empty tomb, 
of the victory that is found in our union with Christ. No one can take your joy away from you. No thing can take your joy away from you. Because your joy is wrapped up in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The only way that your joy leaves you is when you allow it to go away and you say, here it is, circumstance. Here it is, hardship. Here it is, poor health. Here it is, loss of a loved one. Here's all my joy. I give it up to have it never again. Well, when you have a loved one pass in your life, you're going to be sorrowful, but you don't live in that sorrow. You live in the joy of your relationship with Christ. When your health is failing and your days are numbered, which they are, but it becomes more obvious they're numbered, it doesn't take your joy because you're about to see your Maker. When you don't know how, you can take another step You don't lose your joy unless you choose to give it up. No one and no thing should be able to take our joy from us unless we're willing to let it go. Well, we'll continue in this passage of Scripture next week. But thinking about sorrow, the reality of difficulty and hardship in our life, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. What kind of joy will we experience? What kind of grip will sorrow have on us? Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the confident hope that we have in our union with You. We thank You for all that You've done for us, some of which we know a little about, some of which we know a lot about, some of which will make all the difference in the world. Would you make us into the people that desires to know the fullness of the truth so that we would be truly set free, so that our joy would be full and that nothing would ever be able to take that away from us. God, we thank you for the depth of your love. We thank you that it is inexhaustible. We thank you for your graciousness and the merciful way that You choose to deal with us. God, may our heart always say, thank You. May we always walk with the joy that You provided. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing, let's worship Him.